0: Very special, unique episode for you today. First, however, I wanted to tell you about another special, unique gig that I started doing. I started another podcast. That's right, a second podcast that I hope you will subscribe to. It's called Heimerdinger on Heimerdinger, The Politics You Deserve. And it's comedy, sort of a Monty Python politics kind of thing. I know there are some fans of my novels They're somewhat disturbed to find out that I'm a very staunch conservative and not particularly quiet about my political views. They'd rather I just be sort of this neutral, neutered nothing. Nope. And though my spiritual convictions will always pale in comparison to my political views, I'm actually pretty darn obsessed with political stuff. And what a great thing to discover how to turn my obsession into something comical. Goodness knows we could all use some lightheartedness. See, I got the idea from a recent Forever LDS episode wherein I interviewed myself. What it? I called that... Uh, The Storyteller in Tennis Shoes, I think. If you listened, you know it was this mock conversation wherein I was talking to myself. But the joke was that I made it sound like two different people. Got some odd messages from fans on that. Very sympathetic, saying how terrible that interviewer treated me. And not to give that person any more interviews. Meaning I was really rude to myself. Not quite sure some got the joke. Anyway, I thought it was a rather fun and clever idea, so I decided to create a podcast where I was basically having political dialogues, debates, sort of like that old Hannity and Colm show on Fox News, remember that? Except I'm doing both guys, the conservative and the liberal. So the inside joke's always sort of breaking the fourth wall to admit we're the same dude. An absurdist portrayal of both sides of America's political landscape, except uh, don't get the impression it's fair and balanced in any way. My leftist, liberal, progressive side is definitely a few French fries short of a happy meal. But that's how I view those folks in real life. So, ho-hum. Again, it's called Heimerdinger on Heimerdinger. The politics you deserve. Four episodes so far. Here, let me, I'll I'll give you a, a 20, 30 second sample. Well, your personal hero is Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson. CNN loving, Don Lemon worshiping. And then you have a crush on Laura Ingram. No, I don't. Oh, come on. Don't lie to the people. You know you have a crush on Laura. No, I, I maybe Christy Nome of South Dakota. Isn't it North Dakota? No, it's South Dakota, you idiot. Oh, and you're so much better with your bedroom wall plastered with pinups of ocasio casio Cusiga, cortez Well, I'm a controversial guy. I I like them married too alexandra is not married i thought she was married to her brother that's ilhan omar okay that's all you get that's our sample clip find it on any platform itunes stitcher in fact i just finished saying to my alexa alexa play the podcast heimerdinger on heimerdinger episode one and it played kind of cool there's also special stuff for patrons on patreon yada 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 So, does that mean I'm not going to do forever LDS anymore? Ah, perish the thought. That's why I'm posting this new episode today, and it's a good one. Here's the thing. I recorded this interview with electrical engineer Michael Hooten about the end of the world, the apocalypse, and a dozen other topics over a year ago. I just never got around to editing it. Editing interviews are a pain in the patushi anyway, and last year I, of course, I published Thorns of Glory Part 1, started narrating Muckwhip's Guide, enjoyed the birth of a second grandchild, I don't know, whichever one of 300 excuses you want to plug in. But a couple weeks ago, I re-listened to this interview, and I thought, wow, this is cool, especially considering it was recorded before All this coronavirus pandemic muck muck. So listening to this now, knowing that in 30 days we were all going to find ourselves sitting in the front seat of this so-called Armageddon, this massive worldwide plague, I don't know, it added this realistic element, even a surrealistic element, a deeper layer that kind of took me by surprise. Not sure that extra layer... Of insight would have been there if I'd posted it a year ago. Now, if you're expecting some kind of exegesis of Revelation or the book of Ezekiel or 2 Nephi, you might be disappointed. My interest was in discussing this from a very practical angle of what would happen and what would the world do, in particular, what would Americans do in the face of the kind of planet altering disasters often only addressed in dystopian science fiction. Michael and I are just going off the cuff here. Don't expect everything that we say to be 100% accurate, even as I listen to it a year later. I have insights that I wish I'd said or wish I'd added. But what I hope it does is, I mean, especially if you're listening to this with someone else, it will provoke you to enter the conversation, offer your own insights and ideas to the topic. Now, remember, as Michael and I discuss this subject, Donald Trump is still president. It's late December 2019, just about a month before news of COVID-19 will start to discombobulate every facet of our lives. So, with that in mind, let's Get started.
1: Today we
0: are interviewing Michael A. Hooten, electrical computer engineer extraordinaire. Not famous, but the head of that particular department at his corporation. And when he explained to me what he did for a living, I didn't really understand. My rape right brain gave me fits. So I think what he explained that he does was he creates. Electrical computer gadgetry that checks the proficiency of other electrical computer gadgetry. Which means he makes sure that all the other gadgetry is working right. So, Michael, you joined the church as a young man, just like I did. I think I was a little younger. I was 18. But right out of the Navy. In the Navy. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, you
1: can't go wrong with a good conversion story, so...
0: Start us out with that. All right, well, yeah, I was in
1: the Navy. I was at a training base in a little town called Dahlgren, Virginia. Very small town, the the type of town that they were concerned when a McDonald's was built there because they thought the crime rates would go up. The base was basically the reason it existed, but my wife and I were living in an apartment just off base, and we got a knock on our door one day, and it was a senior couple.
0: Now, hold it. Let me go back a little bit. Uh, You're from Texas. Yes. Family roots that predate the Mexican War, that uh, Texas was a state in the Union,
1: and your wife is a New York Jew. She is half Jewish, half Italian, actually, so she's third generation on both sides. Jew, Italian.
0: And she is a sweetheart as well, but she definitely has the New York accent and the New York attitude so
1: the story is, the shortened version that I like to give is that I grew up in Texas, my wife grew up in New York, we met in Florida, got married in Illinois, joined the church in Virginia, went through the temple in Idaho. So it's been kind of all over, We're really kind of a transcontinental. When, we got out, when I got out of the Navy, we moved to Utah. As my father-in-law said, we moved to Mecca. That's how we like to put it. So back to the conversion story. We got a knock on the door. It was a senior couple. They asked us if we had ever heard about the Book of Mormon.
0: An older couple.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, there's a commercial for going on a mission as an older couple. Yeah, it was a branch
1: president and his wife. The best part about why they knocked on our door was they had been challenged by the young elders in the area to knock on 100 doors. Ah. We were like the 122nd they knocked on.
0: Oh, we used to hate tracting on our mission. We wanted referrals.
1: Elder and Sister Kazair, they were, they were something else, and they were quite inspirational for us. They were our, our spiritual grandparents, I guess, almost godparents in the, the truest sense of the word. And they brought us the gospel. It was amazing because my wife, growing up, had been exposed to a lot of different churches, and she went to her stepfather, who is an old New York liberal Jew, and said, how do I deal with these Christian preachers who keep asking me to basically join their church, to get baptized, to become Christian. She said, what do I tell them? He said, ask them three questions. Ask them, what about the dinosaurs? Where's the Garden of Eden? And what about the American Indians? So she had been asking these questions for... Let me stop you
0: a second. The only one I didn't understand was that third question. Why would he think that would trip up or stumble a Christian, asking about the American Indians?
1: How are the American Indians regarded in the afterlife? How can they be saved if they've never heard the gospel? How well, can anybody who's never heard the you gospel You could ask the same thing saved.
0: about the Aborigines of Australia, or could, any you. number of isolated peoples that... But he chose the
1: American Indians.
0: That almost seems like an inspirational off-group to ask about almost. if you're talking to a Latter-day Saint.
1: Almost. And she had asked those questions to a lot of Christian preachers, and they had all said basically, you know, you just have to have faith. You just have to you have to trust that God knows what He's doing and that everything's going to work out in the end. And it was a very unsatisfactory answer for, and I think it would be for anybody. But she kept asking, and she had an ex- She asked very cynically at first, and then she had an experience, a spiritual experience that made her start asking in earnest because she thought that if she could find a church that would answer those questions, then she would found a church that had more of what she was looking for, more answers that would satisfy her desire for true spiritual connection. And so, Elder and Sister Cazare gave us the Book of Mormon. I read, I think, the introduction. I didn't get very far at all. My wife didn't read any of it, but when they came back and said, do you have any questions? She said, well, yes, I do. What about the dinosaurs? And Elder Cazare said, what about the dinosaurs? She said, well, why isn't it mentioned in the Bible? He said, what does that have to do with salvation? And she kind of thought about it, and she said, huh. He said, we know dinosaurs existed, but why would they be in the Bible if they don't have anything to do with the plan of the gospel? Why would God mention them in connection with saving your soul if they don't have anything to do with saving your soul? Okay, she didn't expect that answer, but that was pretty good, actually. You know, uh, not squirrely, not too squirrely, I should say. So she said, where's the Garden of Eden? He said, Missouri. And she's, that was, the, that was the one she was like, really? Missouri? He was like, yeah, Missouri. And he said it with such confidence and with such absolute certainty that it really took her back because she was like, I, I was expecting, you know, the Middle East somewhere. He said, no, it's in Missouri. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, I well remember my days as a non member of the church. That answer would have struck me as okay, I think we've gone on long enough. I have another urgent appointment.
1: Except that he was so utterly confident about it. There was no, would you believe if I told you Missouri? It was not, he wasn't trying to convince her at all. He knew. And he knew with such certainty, and that knowing made it very believable. And we were. We've been talking for a while, and there was there was that feeling of the spirit already. And it, I think that... How many meetings applied. had you had already? This was probably our second meeting. And they, uh <laughs> discussions were only supposed to go for about an hour. And they started scheduling two hours for us, because we had a lot of questions.
0: I love those kind of
1: investigators. So the third question was, well, what about the American Indians? He said, you need to read the book. And she was like, really? He was like, yes. At least... Part of the answer of, what about the American Indians, you will find in the Book of Mormon. She was like, oh, okay. So, yeah, Elder and Sister Kazare were still our missionaries. Elder Kazare has passed away. He passed away, gosh, 17 years ago now. But Sister Kazare is still alive up in Idaho. We go and visit her. That's why we went to the temple in Idaho. Oh. Because we were living in Mayport, Florida. I was, again, still in the Navy. And we were getting ready to go through the temple, and the only people we wanted there were our missionaries. We didn't have a lot of spiritual connection with a lot of people at that stage still. And they said, you know, we can come down to Florida and go through the Orlando temple and maybe go to Disney World, but why don't we fly you Oh, to Idaho, and you can go through our temple, the temple that we were to.: Now what was the religious significance of Disney World? <laughs> there wasn't any, and that, that's part of the problem is that once you go through the temple, then what? It was you go through the temple and then you're surrounded by you just happen to be Disney there. World. Yeah. and oh. your or Universal Studios, it's Orlando. it's Disney I World-ish.
0: was just being But that was
1: actually their point, is that after you go through the temple, what else is there to do there? Nothing spiritual. So they said, why don't you come up to our home and you can go through our temple, the temple that we were sealed in. We thought that was a fantastic idea. So we actually flew to Salt Lake and toured Temple Square and went down to Provo and saw Brigham Young University campus. Just because when I got out of the Navy, I was thinking that maybe I might go there. So we kind of went there and saw a little bit of that. And then we drove to Idaho Falls and we went through their temple, which that was one of the best things that's ever happened to me why Um, because it, it it wasn't just i mean the the religious experience was something that i never expected i grew up protestant and i never thought of why temples were needed in the old testament just that they weren't needed anymore
0: what was your religion or religious background as a young man, as a child?
1: Mostly that I remember was a Bible fellowship church, very um, Bible oriented. We started Methodist, but for some reason we didn't stay there. We we found this Bible church. So just
0: a variety of Protestant, that would be my background, just a variety of Protestant denominations, organizations.
1: Yeah, and it, it was it was not a bad religious upbringing in the sense that I learned a lot of Bible stories that people don't, even people that grow up Christian don't know a lot, like uh, Balthazar and the donkey. That used to be a very common story. Balthazar was going to, to curse the, the children of Israel, and his donkey stops and won't move, and he's, he's beating the donkey and saying, why won't you move? And the donkey turns around and says... Can't you see I'm saving you? There's an angel ahead of you with a sword, and if you cross that line, he'll kill you. I'm saving you. And Balthazar and the talking donkey was one of those stories that when I was growing up, it seemed like everybody knew. And now nobody knows that story anymore. I thought that was like a classic Bible story, and nobody knows it. Or nobody seems to remember it anyway. So, yeah, I had never thought of having a ceremony that wasn't just a ceremony was actually a covenant between myself and Heavenly Father that was designed to bind me to Him forever. That was was completely outside of any any of my upbringing, and my wife, my poor wife. The Jewish faith, at least the way it's practiced by liberals in New York, non-Orthodox, doesn't believe in heaven at all, and is very close to being atheist. They believe that God exists, but they don't believe that he interacts with the world. They don't see themselves as the children of God and a chosen people so much as a people that have been set apart by lineage in a way that makes them special. For many Jews,
0: and I don't want to speak for the Jewish religion, but my impression is that Judaism is much more of a culture than it is a religion.
1: In a lot of ways, yes. It is a religious culture. It has a religious underpinning, and there are certain elements of it that don't make sense without the religious context. And my wife even freely admits she is a cultural Jew, not a religious Jew. And it's a huge distinction because she doesn't keep kosher. Never did. No. Her mother's favorite foods were ham and shrimp which are both (laughs) completely non-kosher. She grew up without a sense of how religion interacted with your life or could interact with your life because she didn't live that way. I at least had the idea that the reason why religion exists is to help you be a better person, and the reward at the end of it is you go to heaven. That was the basic Christian Protestant belief. But I didn't expect the temple because I didn't think, oh, I need to go and do a formal covenant with God that binds me to him and him to me so that he knows me the way that I know him, so that we're connected now. To me, that's what the temple does. It connects you to God, not just because of what you do, but because of the covenances you make, you really do put your name in the book. That is how you write your name in his book so that when he opens his book and says, I'm calling my children, your name is listed. Otherwise, your name isn't listed. It's not that he doesn't care for you. It's not that you're not his child. It's just that you're not in the book that he knows are the people that he can call when the time comes. And that's kind of a, I don't know, a deep theology in a lot of ways for a lot of people. But it's, the temple is so much more than a normal building that you don't come out of it without a sense of a fundamental change in who you are. The hardest part is keeping that fundamental change going, because it's very easy to revert back to the way you were.
0: Sure. We call it backsliding. Yes. Maybe they do that more in the Protestant world.
1: It's a very apt description, and it's the type of thing that to make the change permanent, you have to live the change permanently. It's It's setting up a habit, but it's so much more than that at the same time.
0: Now, what would Kristen, your wife, consider her moment of conversion?
1: She was converted during the discussions.
0: Getting satisfactory answers to those yeah, three and she questions. Described
1: it, she described it as a golden ribbon connecting her to Sister Kazer. Sister Kazer, I think, was talking. And she could almost see it was like a golden ribbon that had connected them. And it, it caught her completely off guard, because she's not a metaphysical, visionary person. And for her to describe it like that, even she doesn't, she doesn't think of it as something that everybody should accept literally. It's just the only way she knows how to describe it, the, the sensation that she went through. And so I think every time she remembers that, it strengthens her faith in the church, her desire to be a good member of the church.
0: Well, now let me make the segue into why we are talking to Michael Houghton. And that is because Michael is a great conversationalist. It really doesn't matter what the topic is. He's, uh, it seems as if he has thought through just about everything under the sun. But his particular field of expertise in electronical computer engineering has given him some perspectives on... The end of times on armageddon on many of the urban legends that we think about and some of us are actually fearful about on a day-to-day basis and that i have found astonishing because i think even for myself i would think about well man what would happen if one of our enemies set off an emp and we lost all the electricity for a long period of time, and everything that we depend upon was suddenly unavailable to us. There are so many people that wouldn't even know how to how to boil a hot dog. Um, That's true. There's just a lot of people that would be lost. They would have no idea how to survive on a day-to-day basis, purify their water, do survival techniques, m- basic medication, uh, basic first aid, a lot of things like that.
1: So there are a lot of people that wouldn't. The misunderstanding, I think, and this is why I don't like dystopia, literature and media in general, is because there's this idea that if we lose all the modern conveniences, then man reverts to savage and becomes an animal again, essentially. And resisting that is, is oftentimes the only point of writing a dystopia is that you know some small group of brave people tries to to keep civilization alive but they're facing overwhelming odds and I think that the reason why this is a, a fallacy is because and I can't speak for all the world but for America we have a culture and a way of life that does not automatically revert to tribalism for one thing which is very unusual in the world the other thing is is that sure we have Well, it
0: seems lately like we are reverting to some political tribalism.
1: political tribalism. But you'll notice that even political tribalism cuts across normal lines. Because you have, basically, socialists and communists aligned with Muslims. Which, ideologically, there is no connection there. There's no reason why they should join together.
0: They're not Christian.
1: It's not even... That's all...
0: I mean, that would be the... Understanding that I get listening to Progressive.
1: There is some of that. They just it's don't like Christianity, and so
0: they want to support anyone who's not Christian.
1: Right. But the, the people that they support in doing that, sometimes I don't think they think through the, the implications of that. The thing is, though, that if, okay, let's say an EMP attack happens. EMP, okay. Electromagnetic pulse. North Korea, China, somebody explodes a hydrogen bomb 100 miles in the atmosphere big pulse over basically our quarter of the world, knocks out all the electrical power. Everything that's connected to our electrical grid is fried. There are two things that you have to understand about electricity though. If it's not connected to a circuit, you can generate electricity in a piece of wire, but it doesn't have anything to do if it doesn't have a circuit to complete. So anything that's not connected to a circuit, you can hit it with a great big pulse of power but the chances of it doing anything are very small. So everything that's in storage, that's not connected to a battery or something, probably wouldn't be affected at all.
0: And we have
1: an enormous abundance in America of spare parts, essentially. Would some of them be damaged? Sure, of course, there would probably be damage all over the place, and damage that you wouldn't necessarily know until you start hooking things up. The thing is, though, is that we're Americans. We tend to put things back together. You break things, that's fine. We'll put it back together. And if it doesn't work the way we expect it to, we start rearranging until it works. That's our culture. That's, our, that's built into the fabric of our nation. People that come here don't come here because they, they want to find a place of ease. They come here because they want to find a place to work, to get better, to improve their situation.
0: But how long after an EMP would we put it all back
1: together? We would have a functional, we would start having functional electricity, I would say, within two weeks. Two weeks? We might not be able to power cities, but we'd be able to power communication centers. Within two weeks, absolutely. Probably within 24 hours, we would have something up and running so that people could talk to each other and find out how bad things were.
0: You're saying that news stations would be on the air within two weeks?
1: No, not news stations. And this is why people think that it would be so catastrophic. No.
0: So what would be the communication grid, then, that you think would come back into play within 24 hours? Ham radio is going to be your start. Nobody has ham radios
1: anymore. Yes, they do. Again, that's what people don't remember and people don't realize because popular culture assumes that everybody works the same way that people in New York and Los Angeles work. That's our popular culture. Everybody outside of America thinks that we work like New York and Los Angeles, Those are the only two places that exist in America. And they're so surprised. I have friends who come from foreign countries. A lady came from Finland and landed in New York. And she was like, oh, well, now that I'm in America, I land in New York. I'll go see L.A. She didn't realize it was a three-day drive. Because New York and L.A. are the only two places that exist in America. By what we show the rest of the world. But it's not true. We have a vast... Majority of people that don't live in either one of those places. Well, I think Chicago
0: is somewhere in the middle of that.
1: For some things, yes. But Dallas, Houston, Minneapolis, there are lots of places.
0: What you're saying is there's a lot of ham radio operators still. There's still
1: a lot of ham radio operators. There are probably. So it almost sounds like rural
0: America will be able to get things back on track easier.
1: Yes, because the the attitude in rural America is if it doesn't work, we fix it. You don't have a Walmart around the corner. Even have you been across
0: America lately? I have been across America. And Walmart's
1: <laughs> in a lot of places, but there's still a lot of places that Walmart is an hour away. And if the Walmart is shut because they don't have electricity and they can't take your money, that's not an option anyway. So what are you going to do? Well, these are people who have, for the last 150 years had tractors that when the tractors broke, they just fixed the tractor. And nobody taught them. They didn't go to school for this. They figured it out for themselves. And it's built into the fabric of America in a way that the rest of the world doesn't get about us. You can destroy America, what you think of as America. Shut down all the McDonald's. Shut down all the Starbucks. Shut down Las Vegas. And shut down Times Square. And shut down Hollywood. And America would shrug its shoulders and say... That's such a small part of who we are. The rest of the world may think that they destroyed America, but they didn't destroy America. They didn't even start. That's why the terrorists hit the Twin Towers, because outside of America, the Twin Towers were this huge symbol of capitalist America. So, an EMP,
0: how long would it take to get pretty much all of society back in
1: operating form? You wouldn't get all society back in operating form for probably several years, because Again, we think of society as being cities. Well, the cities are going to be the hardest thing to bring back online because you need there's a lot of infrastructure, and they're the most likely to be affected in the biggest ways.
0: Well, that's do? where there's going to be famines and riots mm-hmm. and that sort of thing.
1: Yes, and, but even there, even in the cities, when you have famines and riots, you still have an awful lot of people that still have that cultural attitude of America of we'll fix our own. And we've already seen this happen in Louisiana with the hurricanes, the Cajun Navy, because the government couldn't rescue people fast enough. The people got together and literally formed their own small Navy. And they're just johnny boats. But they went out and rescued everybody. And the government's attitude was, well, you're not certified to do that. And the people said, so, so
0: <laughs>
1: you don't need certification to take a boat and go and rescue somebody. And again, the American attitude... So that kind of bureaucracy would break down, which might be a good thing. It might be a good thing. In fact, it almost definitely would be a good thing. There was another example I thought of. Well, 9-11. The reaction of the first responders was so different in America than I think it would have been in so many places. Because it wasn't just the first responders. It was anybody that had training and had been a first responder at any point in their life tended to go into that situation and try and help. So if you've been an EMT in college, but you've been working in Wall Street for the last 20 years, chances are in America, you fall back and you go, wait a second, I know how to help people. I'll start helping people. And we don't hear about it because it just happens here. And everybody glosses over it because it's so common that we don't even notice it.
0: So you're talking about the get-things-done attitude in America. So that's an interesting question. I didn't really want to get political in this conversation, but what if an EMP went off over Europe?
1: Europe They they have
0: basically had a, I mean, many countries, many places, they've had a government babysitter for the last 75 years.
1: I think if an EMP went off over Europe, you would see them revert to tribalism very quickly. It's not that they would completely break down. But what does that down. mean?
0: Give it, make sure that the listener understands what is the kind of tribalism that you're referring to. I mean, if we think of the Book of Mormon, we think about the government falls apart. Everybody just went back to their own family kinships and, and things of that nature.
1: Right, and the Book of Mormon is actually a great example of tribalism because every time things broke down, that's exactly what they did over and over again. They would go back to their, their lineage, their family grouping. So think about in Europe, if something terrible happens in Europe, everybody basically goes from being very European and very continental back to being, I'm German, I'm French. And it gets and it gets well, very small. It, yeah,
0: it breaks down. I'm Bavarian. Right. I'm, you know, I mean, it, it, it gets down even smaller than that. Right. Because very. people
1: don't remember that Germany itself is a union of what, like a hundred principalities into a nation that happened approximately at the time of the American Revolution, that era anyway? Germany as a unified nation hasn't been around for much longer than America has. So how fast would that break down back into those tribal or even geographical things? In America, you would see some of that, but our tribes are very different than European tribes. Our tribes tend to be ideological in nature. But you know what? I think
0: in an emergency situation, I
1: think even
0: political tribes break down.
1: And 9-11 is a great example. For the first couple of weeks after 9-11, nobody was talking about the Democrat or Republican response to it. It was the American response to it.
0: And we lived through that. We witnessed it. We watched it. I watched both towers come down. I watched it on CNN. Hadn't gotten into other networks at that time. And what I remember most is that the tower is crumbling. It is falling to the ground. And the news announcer is continuing on talking about the... Sort of related topic that has nothing to do with the fact that the tower is coming down. It's like he thought what he had to... The
1: thought that he was finishing was more important than what was happening in the background. Because our news media in general is not trained to react to what's happening immediately. They're used to reading what somebody has written for them. You saw it a lot with the reporters. I'll never forget. We were watching, and it was probably CNN. One of the reporters in the street, he's like trying to grab people who are running away from the collapsing towers. What do you think of this? What do you think of this? What do you think of this? And they're like, we're leaving. We're (laughs) running away from it. That's what we're doing. We're not going to stop an interview. We don't care that you've got a microphone and a camera. It doesn't matter to us. In a tragedy, in America, we tend to actually go less tribal than most places. Because all of a sudden, we now have to work together to fix things. And it cuts across all the petty things that divide us. We still have big ideological differences, but we know that if we join together, we can... I'm going to
0: bet that a place like, uh, you know, some of these settled places that were settled by Europeans, places like Australia, Canada, I think many of them will also respond much like America, just to speak positively about, uh, I don't think they have the same kinds of tribalisms that Europe or uh, the Middle East or or something like
1: that, or Africa has. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why places like the Middle East and Africa can't seem to get it together and be productive, is because they can't agree about the simplest things. And it seems like America is headed that direction, except that every time something big happens in America, you see people dropping the petty things and joining together. Where a tragedy happens in other parts of the world, and it seems like they drop the commonalities that they have and go back to their tribes. Is that an American thing? Is that a English common law thing? Because you're right, probably Canada and Australia probably wouldn't have as bad of a time as mainland Europe would because they're not European.
0: Well, over the last 15 years, I would say America has divided itself more into a neighborhood-type status in big cities where you will have... The Jewish sector, the Muslim sector, so big cities, I believe that Joseph Smith was very against big cities. In fact, his vision of Zion was one mile plots all over the country and that there was no big cities. It's like we learned this lesson back at the Tower of Babel. Yes. That everybody congregates into a big city, and that's an evil, bad situation, and so I'm going to babble everybody's tongues. I'm going to make them so they can no longer communicate (laughs) so that they move out across the world. And spread. That is a, a, a definitive weakness that we can point out with the urban ideas. But what is your feeling about how soon... We would have basic services back
1: online if
0: an event of that nature took place.
1: And again, outside of big cities, you would have major services back online within a couple of weeks to a couple of months. Because outside of major cities, you don't have the problems of trying to solve all the problems in a big way. You can get a neighborhood up and running, get their water connected, and move on to the next one. And you can keep doing that over and over. Once you get us out of the big cities, everything's set up to basically be worked on because everything's spread out.
0: Well, I have known people that I... Imagined if Armageddon comes, if there's some kind of a major disaster. I am going there because they know how to do everything. I know a person who knows how to do everything from computer technology to building samurai swords to making fine violins. Yes. And those who have seen Passage to Zarahemla, my Grandpa Lee character was based on him, even though he's a lot younger. And there's more than one. I mean, you go to a place like uh, Logan, Utah,
1: Cash Valley. Yes there's a lot of people that would be just fine. And that's the point. Once you get out of the major urban centers, so you get out of the Northeast, In the Northeast it's who can I hire to do this for me? That seems to be the prevalent attitude, even among working class people. If something goes wrong, who do I hire to fix it? But you get outside of Southern California, outside of the Northeast, you get outside of Pacific Northwest, all of a sudden you're in a territory where something went wrong. Well, can I fix it? Do I have the knowledge? Do I have the ability? And if not, can I get it in a reasonable amount of time to fix my problem? My mother is 75 years old and has remodeled her house I don't even know how many times. She thinks nothing of tearing out a wall that she doesn't like anymore and building a new one, tearing out cabinets, putting in new ones. And she'll do a vast majority of the work herself
0: now, are we just being ugly Americans, assuming those kind of people aren't in Europe? Um, somewhat. <laughs> I think But if you've been they'll have a group. few of those, but as you say, it would be more difficult because they would be more interested in taking care of their own, yes, rather than sharing the knowledge, rather than making sure that everybody else is benefiting from the knowledge.
1: Right, and they, they revert very quickly to seeing everybody outside of their group as the enemy. Where in America, it's you solve your family problem first, then you solve your neighborhood problem, and then you solve your city problem, and you keep expanding it. You say, okay, I'm in a good place. How can I help this guy who's not in a good place? Because he's right there. I can help him. It is amazing how natural that is in our society. It's so natural that we don't comment on it, and it's also so unnatural to the way the rest of the world really works and the way humanity has worked for the vast majority of history. If somebody comes in and attacks my tribe, my tribe assumes everybody will do that. It's a family feud. It's a family feud. And it takes centuries to heal, if it ever heals. And you see, even now, Europe is supposedly unified right now. But if you dig down very deep, the French still hate the Germans, and the English still hate the French. Oh, you you find the same
0: thing with there being biases in England against Cockneys or against the Scottish
1: or against exactly. the Welsh, sure.
0: Exactly. I mean, it definitely breaks down into tribes very
1: quickly. In America, the biggest division was North and South because of the Civil War. Right. But even that, it's kind of faded. I've been on a mission down
0: south and. Yep. There there were still a few people out in the sticks that may have remembered that grudge, but I really had the impression that it was all faded, it was all gone. We mix so much. We all move around so
1: much. We move around very much, and we really do, I think, as a general people, as as a population, we have an extraordinarily high tolerance for people that are not like us, to the extent that It's amazing
0: that right now you get the impression that the media wants to teach us exactly the opposite.
1: I know. And the weirdest part about it is they'll start off saying, oh, everybody hates gays. Isn't that a problem? And America in general reacted and went, wait a second. We hate gays? Oh, yeah, we probably shouldn't do that. Okay, we don't hate gays anymore. And America is a population. All of a sudden, your tolerance for homosexuality shot sky high because we were told... You really shouldn't hate them just because they're gay. The average American went, okay, you're right. We probably shouldn't.
0: I'm not sure I felt that way prior to the public sentiment about it. I would not have understood the culture. I would have not really understood the mindset. I I mean, I just simply love people. And people are all flawed and they are all struggling and they are all going through trials. And they are all dealing with their own particular package of problems and challenges. And uh, sometimes certain things that may have a certain prejudice in the minds of very fundamentalist type people, they're dealing with their own stuff.
1: They are dealing with their own stuff. And I think that racism Mm -hmm. was a real problem. It goes back to the history of slavery in America. Now, that's a
0: hard one for me to understand because literally... My heroes growing up were O.J. Simpson and Bill Cosby. Now, those aren't great examples now, yes, and but... Yes, there's irony
1: of those being your heroes. But these plot. were
0: genuine, and I didn't think of black and white. I just didn't think of things that way. Mm-hmm. And then, it's, I guess it started around the Watts riots in Los Angeles or the O.J. Simpson trial yeah. that had a tendency to make me think, what?
1: There's still racism in America? I had no idea. Well, and racism is one of the things that I think is more easy to understand. Because when somebody looks different from you in a very significant yeah, way... Yeah, but this is America. The guy living in the house next door might look different from you. And, and we just all kind of accept and when we don't care. And I don't think that racism would be as much of a problem if they didn't keep hitting us over the head with the idea that racism is a problem in America. Nobody would think that racism is a problem in America. Martin Luther King was right... It's the content of character that matters, and I think the vast majority of Americans have that attitude in general. You meet somebody new, and they don't look like you, and they don't act like you, and the American attitude is, okay, I don't understand, let me see if I can understand, or at least I'm not going to judge what they do, because maybe they're doing something that's normal to them that I just don't normally do. That's a very American approach. Now, you have the ugly American stereotype. That's when we leave America. And we expect everybody to act like we do because we tend to be a very open, honest, friendly society. Uh, we're
0: blunt. We don't really hold our mores really well. And we don't. when we're outside of the country, we tend to act just the same way as we would inside the country. And so we don't understand all of the social mores. We don't that understand we, the you, you don't act like that in right. France. Uh, but there are people who just simply think I'm American, I'm superior. But I think it's more of a misunderstanding because a misunderstanding. we have such an openness in our culture. Well
1: and we we tend to judge people by our standards, which is again a very normal thing. But our standards are standards that encourage a different attitude to life in general, I think, than some places do. And sometimes you just don't understand what you've stepped into. So like when I was in the Navy, they warned us and... Well, they didn't warn us. In, in France, it wasn't a warning. It was it was more of a, don't worry. In France, public drunkenness is not a bad thing. In fact, it's considered not a big deal at all. If you see a Frenchman stumbling down the street perfectly drunk, nobody thinks anything of him. That's, that's a French thing. If you're stumbling down the street drunk in most European countries, that's considered a faux pas at best, and what a horrible person you are in some places. You know, how could you how could you be drunk in public? That's something that you would do in privacy of your own home. But in France, public drunkenness, sure. And the Navy. <laughs> the Navy gets the reputation it deserves and the sailors were like, Great, then we won't worry about not being drunk. <laughs> 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 Which was not generally a difficult thing to Keep in mind Michael <laughs> was not a Latter day Saint during those years. Actually I was a Latter day Saint by the time I went overseas. Because remember, I joined the church while I was in the Navy. So you're talking about your shipmates. I'm talking about my shipmates. Okay. And they, seriously, sailors get the reputation they deserve. Stereotypes do exist for a reason, and yeah, sailors get it. In Italy, not only were you not allowed to be publicly drunk, but there was a very different social attitude towards what was an acceptable behavior towards women. And it wasn't so much that it was acceptable, but it was, how shall I say, the Italian men are very handsy with women. And the women just accept that about the men. They don't necessarily invite it or encourage it or want it, but they know that it happens. And the context that this came up in was, we were in Italy, I was on shore patrol, which is where we're in full uniform, and we're going around looking for the sailors on our ship that might be doing things that are going to cause public relations problems for the Navy, being drunk, being belligerent, fighting with the locals chasing the local girls. We're looking for troublemakers from our ship. That's what we do. That's what shore patrol does. Well, we were going to the beach. And as a Latter-day Saint, my concern was that it was going to be a topless beach or a nude beach because that's a very European thing, right? And I found out, they said, oh, no, no, they don't have topless beaches or nude beaches in Italy. I said, well, why not? And they said, because the Italian men are too likely to grope the women. And so the women just don't, They never go topless in Italy because the men wouldn't be able to handle themselves. And it's known. So they don't court that. So you're saying in France, they're not as handsy. Right. I don't know how accurate this is. I don't know how prevalent It's a stereotype. It's a stereotype. But it's a culturally ingrained stereotype to the point where it affects how they live their culture. You don't have topless beaches in Italy because the Italian men wouldn't be able to handle themselves. And everybody, that's just natural. The Italians don't think about it that much.
0: Well, I know that in Europe, there's a lot of conversation, discussion, you might even say wasted time, talking about, oh, how those people in Scotland act differently, or, oh, how those French up in Normandy act so differently, whereas in America, we might have rivalries between different sports teams in different cities. But there just really isn't the kind of bias or the kind of gossip that goes on in nations that are much more tribalistic.
1: The differences that we have tend to be geographical and state-based in nature. So, for instance, when I went and visited my friend in Boston, I said, you watch. Everybody will ask me if I'm Mormon because I'm from Utah. He said, no, no, no. In Boston, nobody cares what religion you are. I said, it's not a religion thing. It's a Utah thing. If you're from Utah, everybody wants to know if you're a Mormon. Everybody wants to know how many wives you have. Because that's the perception of Utah outside of Utah. And sure enough, everywhere I went in Boston, and my friend is a dean at Cambridge College, which is a feeder college to Harvard, and he's taught at Harvard. He's a smart guy, and the people that he was introducing me to were intellectuals and very smart people and as soon as they found out i was from utah oh are you mormon that was the first question after where are you from because no what? i'm a member
0: of the church of jesus christ <laughs> I mean, that can be an awkward segment it because it's such a
1: long title but uh... it is but if i had said i'm a texan then it would have been a completely different set of assumptions oh do you have a big hat or, or have you ever raised cattle are you a cowboy There's all kinds of things they might have asked, but nobody would have asked me if I was Mormon or if even if I was Christian. They wouldn't have cared. Religion wouldn't have been a part of it. And even the people that were asking about my religion, it wasn't because they wanted to know my religion. It was because of where I was from. It would be the same thing if I said I was from Israel. Oh, are you Jewish? Well, why would you assume that? Well, because you live in Israel, and that's the Jewish state Right. So, so there's, there's not an extraordinary Jewish? amount of judgment. I, I don't know how much judgment it's not, goes on. But that's just but it. It's not judgment. It's, do you fit the stereotype that's in my mind of people from where you've come from? So when people do find out I'm from Texas, they have a big shift in the way they are And I do
0: the them. same thing. Somebody says they're from Australia. I ask, oh, so uh, you see kangaroos jumping around. I mean, that's just my idea. Or somebody says they're from New Zealand now, I will ask them, oh, so you know Peter Jackson and you've seen all of those, the Shire and the and the and Mordor? I mean, you've seen yes. all those places? So anyway, we all have those kinds of stereotypes, but they're harmless. And well, if somebody says, no, I have never seen a kangaroo and I, I live in Sydney, we don't. Really have them jumping down the streets. I don't. Yeah, we don't. It's not a big deal. We're just making conversation. It was the first thing that came into our head.
1: It's a way for us to to kind of establish some common ground. It's normal throughout the world. That's not a problem. The difference in America is that those type of divisions are very surface for us. I came from Texas, and my family was not appalled exactly, but they were surprised that I married a Jewish girl from New York because I'm from Texas and I'm Protestant. Why would I marry a Jewish girl from New York? That's culturally just vastly different. But at the same time, okay, so you did that. Well, it was surprising. It was a little shocking. That's one thing very positive about the millennial
0: generation is that any race can marry any other race Mm -hmm. and nobody even finds it a curiosity
1: anymore. No, no, they don't. And again, that's an American thing. We treat those surface stereotype things very, very lightly. If you don't match the stereotype, we just and maybe have to go we're into... just
0: talking about each other. I don't know. There's maybe other, there's other people that there have the their point. own attitudes, but and
1: some things are more deeply ingrained than others, and some things. But in in Europe, those stereotypes tend to have much deeper roots, much deeper influence into not the overall culture of say Italy, but you'll scratch an Italian and find that he's from, say, Naples, and his roots have been in Naples for a thousand years, if everything goes bad, even if he's in Rome, he goes back to Naples, because that's family. It can be as
0: simple as, like, in America, you might identify a half dozen to a dozen accents that will reveal what part of the country you're from. Right. I've seen people do impressions of people from Arkansas and Texas and yeah. Louisiana. It's very different. But we don't is think it? about those differences. But when you go to a place like England, which is, of course, a much smaller swath of territory than America, there's a hundred accents, depending on a three-square-block neighborhood area. Yeah. They're very distinguishable, and all people in England can identify it very the opening quickly. opening act
1: of My Fair Lady. Right. Oh, she's from that neighborhood. Obviously, from the way she forms her words. America is so unusual. Like when Hurricane Katrina happened, people that were displaced by the hurricane were spread out all across the country. And I would be very interested to find out how many returned to Louisiana because we had some that came here and we hosted some of these refugees over for dinner at our house one night. An older black gentleman and a younger black gentleman who had two children. He was a single father. And the older gentleman already knew he was never going back to Louisiana because he had landed in a retirement community up in Murray, I think. And the women loved him because he had a a strong Louisiana accent. He was exotic to them and they just doted on him. He was like, why would I ever go back?
0: Especially probably at the time we had Carl Malone, so Mm -hmm. (laughs) that accent was very identifiable. Yeah,
1: but the young single father didn't think that he was going to go back either, because within a couple of weeks of moving here, he had a job, his kids were in school. It's not that they didn't have all that back in Louisiana, but he knew that he was going to be going back, and maybe his neighborhood would still be there, and maybe it wouldn't be. Maybe there was a lot of things that would have to be rebuilt why not just stay where he was and start living his life again? And that's a very American attitude. And he didn't think about, oh, I'm moving to Utah with all the Mormons. He was like, oh, I moved someplace and I found a job and I found a place that my family can live. And I'm accepted and it's going to work. Yeah, and that's all you care about. And so, yes, you have places you can stumble into where you obviously won't fit in. Uh, When I was 19, I moved to Florida. I drove down to Florida with my mom and my little sister and moved in with my aunt in Miami. But we had just gotten into Miami and we were low on gas, so we pulled off the highway into the first gas station we saw. What we didn't realize is that we were in a very bad part of town. It was a place, um, I can't even remember the name of it, but it was basically one of the ghettos in Miami. And we did not know that we had entered bad territory, That this was not a good place for us to be. But what happened was we pull out the highway, pull into the gas station, and I start pumping gas. And this guy comes up to us, this this big black guy, and he says, You're not from around here, are you? I said, No. No, we're from Texas. He said, Oh, okay. He said, Well in that case, hope you hope you have a good time. You're not you're not staying, are you? You're not like gonna stay in this area, are you? I was like, No, we're just getting gas, we're gonna get back on the highway. He's like, Oh, okay. Not a problem. And I didn't understand that he was actually kind of warning me, because he didn't present it as, you're in danger. He just presented it as, just wanna see where we lay with why you're here and what your intentions are. And depending on what you say, will shift my attitude. But my attitude was, I just need to get some gas, get back on the road. Okay, not a problem. Don't care that you're a family of white people in this black neighborhood, that normally we would not treat you kindly. You're not here to try and disrupt us. You're not here to try and change us. You're here to get gas and get back on the highway. That's fine. That's acceptable. That's an acceptable thing. And so we found out later that was a bad, bad place to be. And if it had been after dark, maybe things would have been different. But this was the middle of the afternoon. Everything was fine. So well, those kind of places do exist. Yeah, they America exist. and sure. And you have places that they don't fit the the fabric But again, it's, it's usually
0: those are generally very urban areas. I want to segue back into what we were talking about, and that is Armageddon, end of time sort of things, because I felt like your experience in computers and electronics offered some insights. There are people who will literally lie awake at night worrying about the end of the world. Sure. And they learn about what an EMP is, and I I think it gets built up in certain uh, media and such about what a danger that we're living in. But your impression is, in America or in many locations, it just wouldn't be that big a tragedy. All you'd really do if you have an electrical grid or if your car stops driving, you'd just jump it again.
1: I'm not sure what kind of damage the MP would do to the electronics of your car, but the mechanical components of your car would work fine. They're not going to be affected at all. Just your computer. Just the computer. Now, in a modern car, that means that your car won't run because your computer is controlling all the mechanical actions anyway.
0: But oh, you but think we about, love
1: our cars from the 60s and 70s and yeah, earlier than that. So. Right, and all those cars are going to continue to run because they don't have any electronics. The most electronics they have is a distributor cap, which is not really electronic in nature in the sense that we think of. What about it's, the batteries? The batteries probably are not going to, it's not like the EMP is going to blow up all the batteries in the world. The batteries might be affected and some of them might have a very shortened life because of it. I don't know all the details, but I don't like the doomsday scenarios because they don't match what we know about how the world works anyway. We dropped a nuclear bomb on Hiroshima, and Hiroshima is not still a smoking nuclear crater that nobody can approach. It's a normal modern city again. Was it affected? Absolutely. But we literally dropped a nuclear bomb, and that city is fine.
0: Are there still Geiger readings that are higher there
1: than you'd get in other parts of the world? Maybe, but not to the extent that it's dangerous. And you can get higher Geiger readings for a lot of reasons. You can get higher Geiger readings going out to the Nevada desert, not because they did nuclear testing there, necessarily. But there are lots of reasons why you can get higher Geiger readings, especially in the desert, because you, you're reflecting so much energy. It's a broad place that has nothing to absorb the energy. It tends to reflect everything. Well, one of the things that's being reflected is radiation from whatever source. It probably has a higher background radiation noise, but not dangerously high. And then you have mountaintops, which definitely... Have a higher level of radiation. What about a place like Chernobyl
0: or Fukushima, the nuclear disasters that happened in the Ukraine and in
1: Japan? The Chernobyl reactor and its immediate environments are still very, very nuclear. They still have a very high level of radiation.
0: What are we talking about? How much radius?
1: It's probably, I'd say, 20 miles of the reactor. But that's just it. After 20 miles, things start returning to normal very quickly. I think the area that's cordoned off, though, is much larger than that. Yeah, and that tends to be because people don't understand, people overreact, and because it's a lot easier to keep people... If you're worried about the 20-mile radius, then why would you let people get too close to that? Why would you let them walk up to the line to see how right. bad it is? Yeah, well, I can see that. That's.
0: But I would have thought even 20 miles was a bit of an exaggeration, and maybe 15 is fine, but... Let's just not a... take a chance with tw- with, until right. 20.
1: Uh, Fukushima? Fukushima is pretty much back to normal. All the radiation levels are near normal again. They have a slight elevated radiation, but it's not significant. It didn't affect the sea life. It didn't affect the human life. Not directly. Nobody died of radiation exposure because of the radiation in Fukushima. They died because of the secondary effects of radiation. That's your mutations that cause cancer. Okay,
0: so you offer a lot of comfort with regard to some of our images of disasters that have been painted by the media and science fiction. Mm -hmm. You paint a lot of comfort with regard to some of the electronics, how our innovations would recover from those kinds of things very quickly. What, in your view, would be the causes of an Armageddon situation, especially in the United States? But, I mean, here's, here's why I asked that question. I grew up in an area in Cody, Wyoming. I mean, there's a lot of Latter-day Saints, but I wasn't a Latter-day Saint. And I knew a lot of Baptists, Grace Baptists, and they would put out a lot of pamphlets to try and teach people, and they were basically little comic books. Yes, and they had a firm we belief. of Texas too. Yeah, they had a firm belief that the one-world government that they feel is prophesied by the Bible meant communism. Maybe that's still true, but nobody really thinks of it that way. I would say that most people think of it now as a caliphate. Some people more than others. Yeah, some people more than others. What do you think would be the cause of societal breakdown that would lead to a situation where there's wars and rumors of wars? That seems to indicate a communications breakdown because we aren't sure exactly what's happening everywhere else because we have to be concerned with our own problems locally. What do you think would cause that kind of a scenario?
1: Well, an EMP could cause a lot of that because, again... I think in America we would have communication back very quickly, but we wouldn't necessarily have communication with the rest of the world. An EMP would probably knock out an awful lot of satellite communication. If you can't communicate with the world in general... I would assume if somebody
0: set off an EMP over America, there'd be pretty quick retaliation. And So there's probably going to be one also over Asia or over Eurasia or whatever. So everybody's going to have an EMP pretty much simultaneously, I Right.
1: And the point that I'm trying to make is not that it wouldn't be catastrophic. It would be catastrophic. What I'm trying to point out is that human beings in general, but Americans in particular, tend to be much more resilient than they're given credit for. It's not that we would have everything back to normal within a couple of weeks. It's just that you can't bomb us back to the Stone Age, especially Americans. You just can't do it. Well, what if it was actually nuclear bombs? Okay, where?
0: Um, I don't know. What I was always taught growing up was that if everybody launched their nuclear bombs simultaneously, that life on the planet would cease to exist. Yes, and that
1: may be true. But you're talking about a very particular circumstance for one thing, and you're also talking about the idea that there are even that many nuclear devices that work which we don't even know what the Soviet nuclear arsenal, we don't know what shape it's in. They believe that it's valid, it's viable, that it can be used, but what we know of Russian technology doesn't really give a lot of confidence. The Russians are famous for having stuff that, oh, they swear up and down, we've looked this over and it works and everything's great, and then it doesn't because they couldn't keep the maintenance up.
0: Now, during the Cold War, so much of it, we way overestimated Our adversaries in that, but we couldn't take the chance. And of course, we didn't want any nuclear bombs going off anywhere.
1: You don't want any nuclear bombs going off anywhere. But say the Northeast, New York, Philadelphia area was hit by a nuclear bomb. Okay, catastrophic, yes. Very bad for America, yes. A lot of things would change, absolutely. But America as America would not cease to exist just because you wiped out New York. You wipe out the entirety of New York. America does not cease to exist. It's the first thing that happens that people don't expect. It's just like when the mob killed Joseph Smith, they expected the Mormons to just disappear. Because without Joseph Smith, what are the Mormons, it's just a group of people.
0: It's Joseph well, Smith. Okay, that keeps
1: them well, up. that's in,
0: the, say, Washington, D.C. Same thing. During uh, the State of the Union address.
1: It doesn't matter. Actually, I, I think there
0: are... A couple of people, even at a State of the Union address, that are put in secure location. Yeah.
1: I know the president and the vice president are both at the State of the Union, usually. But there are key personnel that are not there for that reason. But even then... Okay, you wipe out all of Washington, D.C. and all the politicians. America, in general, I think, is going to see this as a net gain. It would be so much better off. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> and that's, again... That's Outside of America, a... they think, oh, well, America will cease to exist without their politicians. No, that's not the way America works. That's not the way any place works, really. But America especially, we would be like, oh, finally, we don't have to deal with that part of. Finally, there was a term
0: limit that was put into effect. <laughs> and people followed it. <laughs> This is not funny.
1: Well, there is a certain dark humor to it. But the point is is that there is no single place in America that you could destroy that would destroy America because America is bigger than any one part of
0: us. Well, what about 10 nuclear bombs pretty well placed in strategic locations throughout the United States? Hydrogen, we're talking about bombs that are 100 or 1,000 times more powerful than what went
1: off in Hiroshima. Okay. You make a crater of every population center with over a million people in America. Well, guess what? Salt Lake is still here because we're not that big.
0: And the particular nation that bombed us has a really spiteful attitude about Mormons. So they decide to make one of their bombs go okay. there.
1: Even then, it doesn't part of the thing is that you can't set off any amount of bombs in America and then invade America. It won't work. Because we own more guns than the rest of the world combined, privately. We have more guns in private possession in America than all the armies in the rest of the world combined, outside the U.S. military. U.S. military, I think, would tip the scale. But if you take the U.S. military out of it, out of all the other militaries in the rest of the world, you do not equal the amount of armament that's, in, that's privately held by American citizens. That's your first problem. It used to
0: be pretty high just a few years ago in, well, just a few months ago in New New Zealand, Zealand. but one shooting, and it was a big tragedy, but is it logical that one incident of that nature should cause such a dramatic change in policy?
1: It's not logical, and you'll notice the end result was they know that there are about 350,000 rifles in New Zealand, and they got, what? Between fifteen and 80,000 of them turned in? It's not an effective policy. You can make all the policy you want, but what people actually do... Well, it takes time. How successful was Australia getting rid of their
0: private gun ownership? It
1: took them a long time, and I still I don't think even they're as successful as they think they are, because once you get away from the cities, the gun is not just a weapon, it's a tool. It's how you keep vermin off your land. It's how you... You've got to get rid of the dingoes. Your... The dingoes have got to go. I have a friend, he's... <laughs> He's a South African immigrant to Australia. He lives on a place called Flinders Island off the coast of Tasmania. So he's an island off the coast of an island. Very rural place. And they do a lot of trapping and hunting. He provides a lot of food from diving. He dives for lobster and abalone. But that's normal in that part of Australia. And if you said, oh, no more guns, they'd be like, okay, We'll find some way else of getting our food, some way else of taking care of the vermin. Again, they improvise because to them, guns are convenient, but it's not the only way to solve the problem. And they'll find another way.
0: But they've got registration lists. They've got
1: the government, even in America, theoretically knows where all the guns are. It doesn't matter. It simply doesn't matter because I could probably find you several thousand people. By the way, I don't think either of us own guns. No, I don't own any gun. Perfectly. But I
0: support the right to own them. I yeah. just don't personally own one. Well, and
1: the problem that I see with gun control is that, okay, you get rid of all, you buy back all the AR-15s or get them destroyed or whatever, and you know that you've done that. And somebody's just going to invent a new gun. Or even better, they're just going to build their I own do gun.
0: know people that with the equipment in their shops,
1: yes. the machining equipment, they know enough about the topic... Yeah. They could build their own. And it wouldn't even phase them. They wouldn't even think about it. But I can go down to Barnes & Noble and buy a book on how to build a potato cannon. Now, a potato cannon isn't considered a weapon. It's considered a toy. But how quickly could you adapt a potato cannon to be something that's extraordinarily dangerous and extraordinarily effective? I would say that anybody that's built a potato cannon could do it in probably about a day.
0: And there's no doubt that our generation, as well as anybody who's rural... Mm-hmm. That's just how they think.
1: It is just how they think. But that's the point is that, okay, so you make New York City a crater. All you've done is energize the rest of the country. All you've done is anger the American citizen and get them basically into a very patriotic mode. You're going to attack America after that? I don't think it's going to go very well. Well, there's no
0: doubt, though, that we do have prophecies that are well known in the church. Mm -hmm. That... When we return to Missouri, it's going to be because nobody else is there. And that Zion will be a refuge where warring nations feel frightened to even go because it's such a destructive, terrible place if they tried to attack it. We speculate. All we do is speculate speculate about how that will come about. But it is an interesting topic of speculation. And the theme is... Just get your own life in order, and yes. follow the prophet, and you will stand in holy places. Right. It is still a fascinating topic for us to try and envision, speculate, it is. how
1: that scenario comes about. Well, again, it's like an EMP attack would be catastrophic. There's no doubt about that. It's just that I think the catastrophe that's always envisioned is that everything breaks down into such animalistic instinct, And humans, for all their animalistic instincts, don't really work like that in a catastrophe. Not that they can't, and not that some people don't. It's just that in general, human nature is much more resilient than is given credit for by the imaginings of entertainment and media. These are the people that say, oh, there's been a school shooting. We need to send counselors in to make sure all those kids are okay because they're all traumatized. Right? And I'm well, not saying that's a bad Many response. of them are. Right. I'm not saying that's a bad response, and I'm not saying it's an inappropriate response. But what I'm trying to point out is that, yes, there is a certain number of people that, if you expose them to extraordinary violence, will not recover quickly, if at all, because it will affect them on such a fundamental level, they won't be able to function in the world they find themselves in. At the same time, we literally take kids out of high schools in America all the time, especially right now, and send them to Afghanistan. And you know they're exposed to things that would be considered horribly traumatic. That's just part of being in the military now. Are all of them traumatized to the extent that they can't function in society anymore? No. The majority of them come back and live normal lives. They may never talk about what they've seen. It may affect them to an extent that they never want to think, it, think yeah, about th- it again.
0: in some ways it affects them all, and we do have a lot of PTSD. But I think that it's publicized to the point where we think that all of them exactly. deal with that.
1: Exactly. We don't know for sure. But our cultural attitude is not helping the situation.
0: No. I, I mean, in a sense, we've created so many policies and so much bureaucracy If we had less bureaucracy and we allowed, say, air marshal type individuals to be in public schools, Mm -hmm. people who you didn't know, you didn't identify, but they had a concealed weapon, I think that students would have a different feeling even those who are unstable, would not see it as such a target, such a defenseless place. And of course, a lot of people are talking about that, and a lot of people are talking against it. And I don't have a crystal ball where I know exactly what would happen in all circumstances. But it does seem like a common sense idea. And I do believe that America, under pressure, has a very good tendency to return to its common senses.
1: Yes, we could spend a whole another podcast on education and public education in general. See, see what is. I told you? I, I wasn't <laughs> quite sure what
0: we would talk about. And we have segued into so many different interesting, I hope the listener is finding it interesting, so. the various topics that we've discussed. Yeah, I will have to interview Michael again. I've never, uh, or it's been a long time since I've met someone who thinks about So many things in the way that I do, but coming from a different area of expertise. So it creates some fascinating conversation.
1: I think that culturally we have removed a component of what we tended to identify as American in the past, that self-sufficiency and that resiliency. There's been a cultural shift to move away from that. And I think that's been part of the reason why things seem more catastrophic when they happen, because we don't have faith in our own abilities as much as we used to. We're not trained to have faith in our ability. We're taught that that's a good thing as much as we used to be. No, I mean, we have 24-hour
0: news, and I watch a lot of it. At the same time, I've noticed that we're obsessed with certain topics on a daily basis. We talk very little about what's going on around the world, unless it directly involves America. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that I could say might be, well, I don't know if it's superior, but it's definitely different about Europe. They will have 24-hour news channels that will focus upon something happening in Sudan and Malaysia and Ceylon. They'll give you a brief overview of the whole world. Right, and I like that. I like watching those kinds of channels because we just never hear about... What happens in Bulgaria, as far as what they are thinking about on a daily basis, and it can give you new perspectives. In America, we become, I mean, Donald Trump's presidency, he is the headline every single day I mean, I don't even think it's been that way with any other president in history. We definitely obsess. Every network obsesses over that topic and all of the politics surrounding it, which does mean everybody in this life has one thing totally equal, and that is time. And we are obsessing about those singular topics much more than we probably should be. And we have our own lives, but in a sense, that's our entertainment to kind of follow that soap opera. And it may be
1: unfortunate. I think it is unfortunate. It is unfortunate. There's a lot more going on than just one person, no matter how... I mean, it's a fascinating topic. I'm just as
0: much into the soap opera as anybody
1: else. If all you do is watch 24-hour news, you think that all that Americans are worried about is Donald Trump in one way or another, because that's all that's being reported. Again, the truth of the matter is, the vast majority of Americans don't think about Donald Trump even once a day. And if they do, it's only because somebody said something on TV or the radio that they heard. And they're like, oh, Trump again. But there's more to it than that. And there's always going to be more to it than that.
0: So what we're saying is that we sometimes get a skewed version of reality, despite the blessings of 24-hour news when you watch a lineup of shows from 5 o'clock until 10 o'clock at night, and every single one of them is focused on the exact same controversy of the day, right. we do get a skewed vision Absolutely. of things that are happening in America. And it's sometimes just what's happening along the Washington Beltway.
1: Right. And you have to remember that, yes, we've been promised that things will get worse. That's one of the prophecies. That's one of the signs of the end of times. Things will get bad. Things will get worse But Zion isn't going to go away. Zion is going to strengthen. No matter how bad the rest of the world may be, Zion will grow. So everything, I think, balances in the end. There is no one thing. There is no disaster. There is no disease. There is no famine. There is no one thing that will alter all of humanity. It can't. That's not the way it works. Yes, you'll have tragedies. You'll have disasters. You'll have... Hurricanes and earthquakes and fires and floods.
0: I'll tell you one thing. What's that? That will alter all of humanity.
1: It's the return of a certain individual. And you'll notice that one of the promises in the book of Revelation is that it will not be able to be denied. One of the most interesting prophecies to me is the two prophets in Israel, in Jerusalem, that are murdered. And lay in the street for three days. And the entire world watches. And it will be done in such a way that... It will not be able to be denied. And it's not that individuals won't deny that it happened, but the general consensus will be that a miracle has occurred. That's what the prophecy says. It's going to be so obvious that you can't refuse it anymore.
0: Now, I knew in this conversation we wouldn't be able to get into everything, <laughs> but I hope that it was an interesting conversation because of all of the factors that. Are going to affect our lives today and our lives in the future. I want to thank Michael for his insight and uh, all of the perspectives that he can provide to me and to all of us with regard to just life on planet Earth. Well I hope people find it interesting. I hope so too. Thanks. Once again thanks to my friend computer engineer and expert conversationalist, Michael Houghton. Whenever I sit down with Michael, I ought to just turn on the tape recorder because it's always like that. And conversations with his wife, Kristen, are, are the same, just as interesting and profound. Have I ever interviewed a woman? Hmm, ooh, that can't be a very good thing. I'll have to repent or face the wrath of the identity politics police. Interviews in general are just tricky for me. I know a lot of famous celebrity types, but uh, what am I going to do? So what's your favorite song from your latest album? Why did you decide to put the word the in the title of your latest book? I don't know. I guess I'm looking for something a little different, like the kind of conversations I can have with someone like Michael or Gordon Jones or Derek Hegstead, where things might go off in any unpredictable direction and still hold your attention. Unfortunately, it makes it twice as hard to edit. In our next episode on Forever LDS, we'll likely narrate the next two H-mails from Muck Whip's Guide. See if Muck Whip and Frog Knot managed to destroy young Mr. Stuart Hansen's teenage soul. And then, who knows, the world is my go-wee-duck or clam. One of those slimy mollusk kind of things. In the meantime, remember, if you don't feel as close to the Lord today as you did yesterday, guess who moved? Yep, you got it. You're so smart. You moved. So, in all sincerity, please, move back. Oh, perhaps I should mention, I do still post occasionally on Facebook when there's a gun to my head. But for the most part, I have transferred my social media presence to MeWe.com, where I also have a Tennis Shoes Warriors group. So uh, come join me there, please. Now, I shouldn't have to mention this, but I'm going to do it anyway. If you want to buy my stuff, books, audiobooks, whatever... Do not buy it on Amazon. You know, Frost Cave. That's my seller name on Amazon. But don't buy it there. Those piranhas, they take 20%. No joke. More than half of any profit that there is from my family. Instead, be nice. Purchase directly from my shop, which is uh, shop.foreverlds.com. Should I repeat that like every other podcast? shop.foreverlds.com then right before checkout there's a special instructions box to request personalized autographs which i hope is kind of fun thank you for joining us today i love my audience thank you for all your support for forever lds and i hope also for heimerdinger on heimerdinger the politics you deserve Maybe even for reading a tennis shoes adventure novel or two or 13. So when is book 14 coming out? Oh, very clever. Thought I'd fall for that one, did you? Not this time. Too early. No estimates. I have no exclamation point, asterisk, dollar sign, exclamation point, exclamation point idea when I might get her done. But it is underway. Well, I've already said too much. That's it, no more. This is Chris Heimerdinger. And this is Forever LDS.